Hi everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is August 10th, 2016. On Monday, the current Emperor of Japan, Emperor Akihito, announced abdication of his status as Emperor of Japan. He is the 125th direct descendant of a long line of emperors, male to male, that has spanned more than 2,600 years. Michael, this is big news. It would be big news if that were entirely true. When you look at the historical record, it's about 1,600 years, which still makes it the longest... In human history. Long, longest dynasty in human history. Right. And when they say... And who's counting? And, and when they say male only, the male only aspect actually came only in the 19th century. There were empresses in the past, but it's true that none of their descendants are now on the throne. Mm -hmm. They served in place of a male who would have otherwise served there. And in one period of Japanese history, the Nara period, empresses were the rule rather than the exception. But currently, it is a male-only preserve, and the current emperor, he wants to hand off his position to his son. Mm -hmm. There are so many things to talk about with this particular issue, and one of, the, one of the reasons why we've decided to roll out Tokyo on Fire 24 hours after we upload it is because the news cycle has just really increased. And this issue in particular really represents that, that pace. I mean, who would have thought that the emperor would have appealed to the Japanese population and said, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit tired here and I, I think I'm, I would like to abdicate. What do you think? Well, he certainly had to go about it in a very strange way. The story is that he wanted to talk about it last December in his annual message, which he gives on his birthday, but that it was not possible to arrange the exact wording of what he wanted to say. And what he wants to say and what he can say are two very different things. Mm -hmm. Because under the Constitution that was established in, in 1946 by the United States, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he doesn't have a political role and, in fact, should not be involved in politics. He can't even comment. He can't even use his voice, powerful because it's so powerful, to comment on political happenings. Well, he, in specifically, he cannot say, this is the way the law is now, I'd like it to be this way. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely forbidden. Uh, it's, it, it, there's no question about that. So he, when he wants to talk about abdication, which is not currently in the imperial house law, mm -hmm. what's he going to say? They couldn't figure it out in December. And then suddenly we had a report on NHK. Mm -hmm. The emperor wants to talk about that. And boy, did they have a witch hunt on who was spilling the beans there, didn't they? Uh, of course, the government Stake secrets off. You know, just went completely bonkers right. about, no, this can't be true. This is not right. The imperial house agency, the, the people who run the imperial institution. This is all by design, though, the, internally. The, exactly. Mm -hmm. the, everything was all for show so that everyone could tick off their boxes. Yes, I objected. Yes, I said this was the wrong way to go about it, but here mm -hmm. we have a fait accompli. Right. And that's what they had. And then a week later, he announces, I would like to talk to the, the nation. And on a Monday, he made that announcement, and he did talk for quite a long time. I mean, it was only the second time ever that he had ever spoken on television. It wasn't live like his first broadcast, which was immediately after the 311 disaster, mm -hmm. when he called upon the nation to gather together and, and be, that everyone was going to be all right. right. We're having a tough time now. And it was an extremely, an extraordinary moment in Japanese history 
because it was not the political leadership of the country that made this statement. It was the it was the emperor. Mm -hmm. And the the I mean, Prime Minister Khan was invisible during that week. He was so deeply involved in rescue and recovery efforts and fighting with the LDP, which was blaming him for the over for the blow up at at Fukushima. And it was the emperor who stepped in and the imperial family which stepped in and became the center of the country. Mm -hmm. And that extra burden that he and the imperial family have taken on really has made his last few years incredibly busy and exhausting for him. And it, as a human being, many people believe he deserves a rest. The last time the emperor went live like this was at the commemoration of the 70th year end of the Pacific War. Well, he, he does that speech every year, and it's, it's just a, a written thing that he does. And yes, it's it's, but it's not his message, right. really. It's, it's drafted by somebody else, and it's, it's a, a generalized message. Here he spoke from the heart mm -hmm. and saying, this, the, I'm a human being, and I'm over 80. Things are not going so great. I've had surgery, and we've had in the past a situation, and he was referring, of course, to that horrible time in 89 when his father was dying, who was... I mean, he was dead, but the machines were still keeping him alive, mm -hmm. even as his body was melting away. That and the entire country came to a standstill. You remember yes, that? Yes, it was. It was a very we dark were, time. We were canceling everything. Parties, you, you no couldn't. Parties, you, everybody no changed neon lights. Turned them down. Everything, and he said, "I don't. I don't want to be part of that." Mm -hmm. and, and so let's let's see what we can do. Mm -hmm. he, he can't suggest what is happening. Immediately after the speech. Prime Minister Abe went on. And again, for me, Mr. Abe is going from disappointment to disappointment. I was absolutely flabbergasted at the limp response that he what gave. A, what a nice opportunity. I mean, this is a global audience that is watching this news. It, I was getting calls from all over the world, from, from Al Jazeera, from, from Channel News Asia, from all kinds of places that were asking me. Right. I was even on NPR this last week. I mean, even in the, in the United States. So, Huge. tremendous news. Right. And I echo your, your disappointment. I mean, it was teed up perfectly for him. Why couldn't he come in and kind of knock that ball through to, to I mean, he is the prime minister of Japan. He's just following up on the emperor's speech. What does he have to say? He, what he has to say is, well, the emperor just spoke. Oh, we got that. Right. Okay. And that was, all, he's already halfway through his speech. Right. And then he says, and I have heard he's probably have some, has some anxieties. We have to think seriously about what it is we can do, I think. I mean, it was, and then they had, that was it. They had television interviews. They interviewed normal people. They went up north. They talked to people who really weren't very eloquently prepared to, to speak on camera. They went to the airport and the departure lounge, and they interviewed some people there. It was just, how was that handled? Yeah, and it was just, I mean, you're the prime minister. You have... Majorities in both houses of the diet. I can tell you what it is you need to do mm -hmm. to solve that man's problem. If you want to call me, I'll tell you. It's a few lines of text. Right. That's all you have to do. Mm -hmm. Because in order to change this, you, it's not a big deal. The imperial house law doesn't forbid abdication. It just doesn't mention it. Mm -hmm. The only thing that talks about in terms of succession is that under the current law, once the emperor is truly dead, or as in the, as in the Wizard of Oz, really sincerely dead, uh, the 
authority and the aura of the emperorship, the imperial house, immediately transfers to the heir. Mm -hmm. There's no ceremony. There's no transfer of anything that has to be done either by the government or by a priest or by anything. It just happens. Mm -hmm. That's all the law says. It doesn't say the emperor has to die for this to happen. Only if the emperor dies, this happens. Mm -hmm. So logistically, it's just a tweaking of the the imperial household law. It's not a tweaking or a revision of the Japanese constitution. It's a law that's already been established. And that's the thing. Conservatives and also the Sankei Shimbun began just putting out misinformation Mm -hmm. about this very simple process, saying that would I mean the, the Sanke asked, should we change the constitution to allow abdication in a, in one of its polls? Right. It's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. There's nothing in the constitution about the succession at all. Let's talk a little bit about this tension or this apparent tension between the imperial household and the current prime minister. Well, there's certainly no love loss between them, but you're not going to hear that in public, and you're not going sure. to see that in writing. But certainly, when we had the one time the end of occupation celebration, the commemoration on April the 28th in 2013, the first year that Mr. Abe was in, in power the second time around. He wanted to have a big, big whoopty party on the 28th celebrating the end of occupation. Right. And the imperial house said, okay, fine, the emperor and the empress will be there. And at the end of that ceremony, that's right, arms going up, Three banzais from the assembled, including the prime minister, not in the program, not okayed, and looked terrible. And the imperial couple were just standing there, mm-hmm. frozen, on the stage. They, they, with, with these just absolutely. They, you could see their eyes were horrified, but their faces stayed frozen because right. there was nothing they could do. But that ceremony has never happened again, mm-hmm. and we know that from that alone that the imperial family was absolutely disgusted by the way that they had been used politically. Mm-hmm. Well, he's avoided visiting the Yasukuni Shrine and having his ministers uh, visit, although some of them have uh, in any event. He's used uh, Issei Shrine to hold the G7 summit. Talking, when instead. you say he, you're talking about the prime the, minister. The prime minister, and, right. And the, the, as for the emperor, he has never, at, during his reign, gone. His father did until 1978, until right. the enshrinement of the 14. Uh, convicted war criminals that happened, and after that point, the uh, the Showa emperor himself did not go to mm-hmm. Yasukuni, and this current Heisei emperor, that's his that's his title, has not gone, and we know very well that his son uh, will simply not go. Sure, Naruhito is is absolutely nowhere near that, especially with his wife who comes from the foreign ministry. Okay, they have absolutely no interest in anyway with any of the nationalist or revisionist programs. Uh, last episode, or maybe last week, we talked about Nippon Kaigi, of which the prime minister is supreme advisor, mm-hmm. right? Maybe even chairman of some sort, right? And one of the precepts of the Nippon Kaigi is the supremacy of the emperor in Japanese political and the, the movement of society going forward, right? Mm-hmm. And the emperor is currently the head of the Shinto Religion. There are a lot of Shinto shrines that are represented in Nippon Kaigi. This tension, I think it's difficult for people to understand what's going on here. It, it seems like they should be coalesced and working together, when in fact it looks like they're working at different angles. Well, we, if, if Mr. Abe wants to disavow 
that his association with the Nippon Kaigi as something that controls him. There's no way he can disavow his, his contact with him. He makes video clips that are then shown at their national convention. Okay, he's there. Mm-hmm. But if he wants to say, I'm, I, yes, I'm a member, yes, I'm, I'm a part of the leadership, but it doesn't control me. A nice way to say that would be, I'll do this for the emperor. He had that chance. He didn't take and, it. And he didn't take no, it. No, he didn't. And, and that's, that's somewhat strange because you would think he's going to use all of the tools at his disposal. Why not, you know, acquiesce somewhat? I mean, the emperor has the hearts of all of the people and the prime minister has at least a majority in the upper house and the lower house. Where's the rub? Yeah, what's the problem? Is it really that he, he must, at the end of the day, look to them mm-hmm. and say, you're my, you're my people, I'm with you. If that's the case, then uh, radical uh, journalists who have, have been ha- hacking away at Abe, or at least trying to, will finally have something real to say, mm-hmm. I think, because it will really be difficult for Mr. Abe to say no to an 80-year-old man. No, you cannot retire. Okay, the only way that he would do that is by just drawing things out. Logistically, though, what will it take for them to revise the imperial household law to accommodate abdication? They would have to make a few tweaks in terms of the issue of, well, they'd have to just put in a new subparagraph regarding succession, probably in Article 3 or maybe in Article 4, saying that in the case of an abdication Mm -hmm. and, and put that wording in. It's just not there right now. And there may be some issues about whether an imperial conference has to be called, which is later on in the well, act. Well, they're, they're predicting maybe a two-year process. That's, just, that's too long. That, uh, already, okay, one of the persons who has spoken out in a moral and an ethical way is the vice president of the LDP, Komura Masahiko, who is himself Todai Law. So he knows what he's talking about. He was the one who came up with the legal explanations for the security legislation last year. He, he's the go-to guy. He said, yes, we should not go about this in a pell-mell way so that it ends up a, a, a botched job, but we should not be, take our time. Mm-hmm. So he, at least, an expert in the law and also a man who's getting up there in, in age, uh, does not see that strategy of drawing things out and delaying as being intelligent or possible. Well, one would think just out of mere respect and deference to the emperor, he's expressed his wish to abdicate. Hey, guys, let's do it. What's, what's the, the big deal? Well, the, the big deal is there is no big deal. That's the big deal. <laughs> the, that if Mr. Abe had a heart and had a willingness to do this, he could convene an extra or session of the diet or wait until the extraordinary session in the fall and get all the people in his party. Hey, it's a parliamentary mm-hmm. democracy. Everybody in your party votes along the party lines or else they're in the freezer. Right. So he gets everyone in his party to vote in the House of Reps and the House of Councillors. Doesn't have to get the Kometo involved, doesn't need the DP, doesn't need anybody else. He's got 50% majorities in both houses. It could be done the next day. It could be be done in a day Mm -hmm. if he wanted to. He just has to want to. These kinds of things are always interesting to follow. There are always interesting dynamics. We delve into them every week. Please stay tuned. Welcome back. The issue of the Senkaku Islands has now risen once again. China has flooded the isles with 
fishing vessels guarded by Coast Guard cutters. This is a huge escalation coming on the heels of the new cabinet appointed by the Prime Minister last week, Michael. It's a, it was an amazing thing. I received an, an email. Would you appear on television talking about the Chinese vessels around the Senkakos? I said, what? What's going on? This huh? is Friday. It happened on Friday. It spilled over on Saturday. 12, 15 vessels on Friday, 230 on Saturday. Sunday it went to 14 or 15. Monday it's 15 again. Well, the, 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 but the thing is, they, they're doing it so cleverly. And when I say they, I mean the Chinese. Yes. This is, this is fabulous. They send all these fishing vessels, right? Well, we, we, some of them are probably don't have a single hook on them, but nevertheless, they send them all. And then they set along because, well, you know, where there are fishing vessels, we have to have the Coast Guard. And it is Jap it is Chinese territory after all, so it's just okay that we have all these very large Coast Guard ships, some of them, mm -hmm. who, of course, have cannons on the front. Uh, and suddenly they're all around the Senkaku Islands, whereas for almost a year we've had real quiet there. Right. Only The only perfunctory visits by Coast Guard vessels and... and other kinds of maritime surveillance, suddenly an armada arrives. Right. What could this possibly be about? Yeah, you know, the Chinese have been masters at foreign policy and diplomacy for centuries and centuries. They're probably one of the better players. People like to think that the French, since most of the lexicon comes from France with, that describes the diplomacy and international relations, but really the Chinese probably are, are the masters at it. They ran something similar to this about two years ago with the coral poaching. Yeah, the same deal, that, right. that same thing. Suddenly, there were all these ships in the Okasawaras, which had suddenly appeared from nowhere, and they were all fishing for coral and strip mining the bottom of right. the ocean. And, the Japanese and then they disappeared. They disappeared, but the Japanese response was rather tepid. Well, the, the Jap that's because everybody was, that's because they have most of their vessels guarding the Senkakus mm -hmm. now, and the Ogasawaras and other areas of Japan are underguarded, so that there was this opportunity. But in this case, I have to take issue in saying that the Chinese are masters of diplomacy. If you're a master of diplomacy, the other side gets the point. Mm -hmm. But basically, the, the PRC, has a way of trying to get people's attention that really pisses people off. Right. I mean, if you look at the, the post-war era, since 1940, well, since the revolution, 1949, okay? When they have ever wanted to speak to the outside world, they have done so by ridiculously over-the-top aggressive acts. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the DPRK sort of does that now right. in the same way, but the Chinese also have this method of getting people to talk to them after, you know, shelling Kumoi or Matsu or doing something completely outrageous. And here, clearly, they want to talk to the government of Abe Shinzo, particularly about one subject, at least in my opinion, and, and it's been reflected in commentary inside China. This is nothing to do with the East China Sea. This is all about Japan trying to get in on the dispute in the South China mm -hmm. Sea. Right. And this is China's way of saying, bug, bug out. out. Bug yes. the hell out. Yes. Stay out of that part of the world. It's not your part mm -hmm. of the world. And we'll go back to, you know, status quo ante in the East China mm -hmm. Sea. If you don't do that, we're going to send all of these vessels and they're going to be there and you're going to have to deal with them. Right. I think, I don't know, um, I, I think they're playing to different audiences. I think they're playing to their 
their internal audience as well, but also the fact that Tomomi Inada was appointed as Minister of Defense. That, I think, triggered this, this onslaught of all of these fishing vessels just showing up and then disappearing. Well, that would be an amazing turnaround. And I don't think even people like the Chinese can move an entire government apparatus to respond that quickly. I mean, it's a possibility, but I, I would have... I would probably disagree with you. I would think it has much more to do with China's internal politics. They certainly got very upset in the way that they perceived Japan got involved in the international tribunal. Right. And they created internally, you're right, the internal dynamic of saying that the entire case that the Philippines raised mm -hmm. was entirely manufactured and stage managed by Yanai Shunji, the who was then the president of the International Court of, right. uh, uh, of uh, Itkalos. And, and that's why it doesn't count. And that it doesn't count because a Japanese arranged it. This is all a Japanese plot. Right. And they kept pounding away at that message and pounding away at Yanai Shinzi, who in addition to being one of Japan's experts on international maritime law, is also the big-time advisor to Mr. Abe in that he was the one who wrote the sec legislation report. Mm -hmm. He was, the, he was the chairman of that group. So it was an easy narrative to put out for the Chinese. They put it out. They pounded away at it. It's all a plot. And now, look, the Japanese are giving the Philippines Coast Guard vessels. They're giving Coast Guard vessels to the Vietnamese. Stay out of the South China Sea. That's none of your business, mm -hmm. is, the, I think, the Chinese message. Well, the Japanese also published a defense report, a white paper, uh, one of the largest in, in history, much of it focused on the uh, enhanced militarization by China of the South China Seas. Uh, it's, it's now becoming, unfortunately, looking like a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of conflict mm -hmm. over either the South China or the East China Seas. Both sides are ramping up the rhetoric. They're, yeah. they're putting out more and more reports on it, and it is really changing the atmosphere really quickly. But let's be, let's be real. The Chinese have really changed the situation on the open sea. Mm -hmm. Sending 230 vessels to surround the areas just outside the territorial waters and then sending a few ships in to upset the Japanese Coast Guard, they have really upped the ante. And I, I, it's hard to forgive unless they are really struggling internally mm -hmm. to keep a, a lid on Chinese domestic wishes to have some kind of real knockdown drag out fight. Right. But once again, I think the move was brilliant because nobody was hurt. It was like a, a, a I'm, I'm going to punch you, you know, a, a, one of those kinds of numbers. They came in, they flooded the seas, they left. It's kind of like a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a talk on Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's in China where they were mobbed by people, you know, close down McDonald's, get out of here. You people who are eating here, you know, you are unpatriotic. Yeah, the, but in the, but in foreign policy circles, they talk about it, it's not really a, a metaphor that I really enjoy. They talk about salami slicing, mm -hmm. where you just keep slicing away at what was acceptable before, and then suddenly the salami's gone. Right. In this case, what's being sliced away at? Well, okay, the fishing vessels are there, and these coast, Chinese coast guard vessels are boarding these Chinese vessels to inspect them as they engage in fishing, which establishes that those Coast Guard vessels have administrative authority sure. over that area. 
to which Japan immediately says, no, no, that's in our economic exclusion zone. Mm -hmm. You cannot board Chinese vessels. And the Chinese say, why not? Yes. <laughs> we're, we're China. We're China. These are Chinese vessels. We're just trying to help. Right. It's a brilliant, and it, and it also just chips away, if you want to say it that way, or slices away at what are supposedly Japan's boundaries. Well, in the meantime, this island is continuing to be created by the Chinese. More sand is being uh, amassed on the, on the coral reefs. Oh, the, the islands that are being developed, they're, they're islands now. Before, they were, they were atolls that were sometimes above water, most of the time not. Now we have structures, we have airfields, we have now hangars. That are, that's the latest thing that has We've just come up. We've got tourist out. ships visiting. Tourist ship visiting. They have, they've had commercial aircraft land on these places. That's it's going to be very. It's going to be very difficult to march it back. In fact, it's probably impossible. Mm -hmm. The Chinese do not believe that the current international system uh, will punish them. And after seeing what happened to the Russians in terms of Crimea and the Ukraine, they're probably right. Or what happened with the International Tribunal. They had an opportunity to hammer home this ruling, and they kind of backtracked on it. Well, the, the thing is, who's going to be the force that asserts the countervailing authority right. to what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are calculating, Asia, ver they're calculating very carefully. They're saying, look, the U.S. is willing to work for freedom of navigation, fine, but there's a limit to what mm -hmm. they're going to do. And we're going to find out what that limit is. Any modern theorist, would say, a, a theorist of statehood would say that's exactly what they should be doing and that's exactly what they will do. Right. 230 Chinese vessels swamped the Senkaku Islands as a show of force. Who knows what that means for international diplomacy between the two nations. But you can be sure this is not the end of the story. Stay tuned for more. Welcome back. Prime Minister Abe has finally put all of his pieces together. He's reconfigured his cabinet. He's got the LDP leaders in shape too. Michael, there's a lot going on here. Well, he managed to get everything done last week, and he's he's seems to have what seems to be, well, in some people's eyes, a fairly stable and popular arrangement. The polls over the weekend were very positive in response to the cabinet choices and, I suppose, the vice cabinet choices. Right. I think we can characterize the new cabinet and the new administration by consistency. He really wants to keep things on an even keel. He tried to get Tanigaki back in as Secretary General. He couldn't succeed there. He appointed a longtime political ally, Nikai, as his Secretary General. Well, I would not say long time. I would say currently devoted. But he, Nikai Toshihiro was seen as someone who could actually challenge Abe, at least during the first few months of the Abe administration, when there was still a lot of concern or a lot of interest in what will be the coming after Abe. Because mm -hmm. we all know LDP prime ministers last for a year, and we have to think about the, who's next. And everybody is also thinking about, am I going to be next? Can I jockey for position? That all, right. all faded away, and we're now in year four of the Abe administration. And Nikai moved with the times. He went from rival into loyal and almost psychophantic mm -hmm. uh, friend of Abe. He's become even more friendly over the last couple of days. He's, and in, indeed he has. Now, the question is, how much of that is real? Mm -hmm. Nikai is old-time politics. 
He, he plays for the long game. Is he really in Team Abe? It's got to be something that the, the folks that are in Team Abe have to think about. Let's talk just a little bit about the dynamics for listeners who might not understand. There is the prime minister and his cabinet of 19. You've got vice ministers who are assigned to each of those ministries. And then you've got the LDP. And I think the dynamic between the LDP, which is the party headquarters, the party apparatus, and the secretariat or the, the ministerial positions, what the, the power shifting that is going on there. Well, the, what, one, one needs another group to be identified, and that's the factions, mm-hmm. which are the groups of LDP members within the Diet, both the upper house and the lower house, who coalesce around a single leader and stay loyal to that leader for several years or, in fact, their entire careers and push that leader into the prime ministership. Mm-hmm. In return, that leader in his, up till now it's all been men, there's up that's not true. Santo has been the head of one, uh, the head of a faction. We have a, a woman leader of a faction for the first time right now, but it's the smallest faction, and no one ever talks about it. And they didn't get a minister's post in the last uh, reshuffle. So, okay, when your man moves up in the party, he pulls you up with him, and it, the factions are actually the the group that proposes to the prime minister. Here are our candidates for ministerial positions, choose one. Right. And that's the way the LDP operates. The, the prime minister is the, at once the head of the government and also the head of the party. At the head of the party, he's called the Sosai, the president of the LDP. And he has beneath him underlings, the, the secretary general, who runs the party from day to day, and the head of the general council, and the head of the policy research council. Mm-hmm. Now, the Abe administration has been very interesting in that he has, up until now, had a lot of faction heads inside his cabinet. This last cabinet reshuffle, though, some of them got swept out. Ishiba left, Mm -hmm. Ishihara left, and whoosh, now we have a different dynamic. We have faction heads both in the secretariat of the party and inside the cabinet, but Nowhere do they seem to be having the influence that they used to have right. in the party apparatus. One of the interesting points on this is that the prime minister, though, must relinquish his party position when he becomes prime minister. Well, he, he relinquishes his, he stays the head of the party, but he relinquishes his faction head, his faction membership, sure. Mm-hmm. And so even though the prime minister is, he, is a part of the Hosoda faction, of Mr. Hosoda, which is actually, it's called the Sewakai, and it has a long history right. going all the many way back. Many prime ministers come many out of back, that. All the way back to Mr. Abe's grandfather. Uh, this group, uh, he had to leave it mm-hmm. officially. But everybody knows that he's still in on it. And they received the lion's share of, sure po- of posts in the cabinet. In addition... Mr. Hosoda was named one of these posts. He was named head of the general council. Mm-hmm. So that the Sewakai is absolutely dominant in, in real terms over the party. Which, which is why we, we focus on Nikai. Because he's a faction head of a medium-sized faction. And he's in the central party position of secretary general. Which is the guy who is in charge of day-to-day management, in tar- charge officially of election results, mm-hmm. and also in charge of personnel. Right. And to, Mr. Tanigaki was perfect in that role. 
for Abe because Tanigaki had no hopes of ever rising in the world and had given up basically. He had been president of the party while the party was in opposition. Very successful president of the party. If you by successful mean obstruct, stop, delay, uh, be basically near treasonous in your behavior, he was successful. Mm -hmm. I would agree with you on that. Uh, <laughs> what they did during the period after 311, after the national, natural disaster and then the Fukushima disaster, what they did to cut down the government of Naoto Kan was borderline criminal mm -hmm. and certainly was not patriotic. Never to arise again. No, I'm not going to... I, I, I have spent too much ink and too much of my breath screaming about that, and I've given up at that point. But yes, he was perfect at that time, and he was perfect for Abe because he had served as, as president, had never become prime minister, only the second time that that has ever happened in, in, in LDP history, that the party president did not become prime minister. Mm -hmm. And he was done. And he was a moderate, he was a China-friendly, good choice. Okay, so Nikai comes in. Nikai is China-friendly. Good. He is considered a moderate, yes. But he's in his 70s, and he still has the thirst. Uh -huh. He still wants to be in charge. At least that's what people think. And he's, that might be, a lot of people think, that's why he's so vocal in his loyalty to Abe. Sure. Just this last week, he announced that the prime minister will get a third term under the ruling of the, the constitution of the LDP for the prime minister to run for a third, a third term. Currently, the rules, the bylaws of the LDP do not allow for a third consecutive term. Mm -hmm. They have to be changed. And he has said, we'll change them. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. Now, that goes against the grain of this, of this particular cabinet because the cabinet sure looks like an Abe last cabinet. I'm going to put in my friends. I'm, they may not be in jobs that they're appropriate to. One cannot say that Inada is really the best choice at defense. She's never been a defense wonk. And her views on history are absolutely sending Beijing and Seoul into a tizzy. They're sending ships into the same country. Maybe that. And... Mm -hmm. Then we have Seko at Meti. He has no economic experience. What is he in charge of industry for? But they're extremely loyal and good friends of sure. Abe. At that point, he's, he's giving out the spoils to his friends. In two years, he's done. He's out. Boof. Well, isn't it true, though, that when prime ministers resign, being prime minister, actually their power increases because they're in the background, they can control things, they can be inside their faction, they can actually do something uh, of, of great significance. That was sort of the, what people were talking about in terms of having Tanigaki around. Tanigaki was always a possible replacement for Abe from Abe's point of view, that he would have a malleable, milk-toast figure that he could manipulate mm -hmm. from behind the scenes. It's a bit far-fetched, but that was one of the theories that was put forth for Tanigaki's real longevity at the post. Right. The, I, I'm, I'm of two minds on that one. I can see where, where you can get that idea, but I think Abe really wants to make some kind of statement when he leaves, if he leaves. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue of changing the, the bylaws is childishly simple. You have the January meeting of the LDP, every year they have the annual meeting. All the members get in the room, 
And if you can get 50% of those in the room it's to It's an vote LDP for, issue. It's an LDP internal issue. 50 And it's, it's not even the whole LDP that gets to choose it. Just the people who show up at the party meeting. 50% right. of the hands go up, it's done. Right. The bylaws are changed. So it's not as it, it, it's nothing like the, what the emperor is asking as regards to the imperial house law, where, right. you, where there's, you know, there's real issues here. Here, it's a, it's, it's a rubber stamp. Right. You mentioned milk toast, Michael. I'm wondering if of all of the cabinet ministers, all of the new leaders in the LDP, if Nikai is not that figure that is going to cause the most discord and, and kind of be the spark of, of something that happens within the administration before the close of this year. I don't think so. I think that he's playing his cards very close to his chest and saying, I'm in the catbird seat. I get to choose any of the, any new people who get who are put up in terms of a House of Representatives mm -hmm. election. I'll get the first dibs on House of Counselors election in three years' time. If I'm still around, I'll be in charge of the party apparatus. I will be tasked with deal dealings with China. I'm sure their, their phone is going off in his, his office right now as regards these ships that are in the Senkakus. Get over there to Beijing and talk to these people. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, in, he's in a wonderful position for him and I don't think that'll, that he's going to make waves. With the election of half of the upper house and the new governor, you would think that the news cycle is slowing down. In fact, it's speeding up. You can anticipate over the next four months an awful lot happening in Japanese politics. We're going to be watching it and reporting to you. Please stay tuned. Welcome back. Yuriko Koike is the new governor of Tokyo, and one of the biggest issues she has confronting her is the Olympics in 2020. The Olympics are now being held in Rio. There's a lot of things that we can study and glean from what they're doing there. She's actually in Rio now. She will carry the flag back to Tokyo triumphantly, but there's a lot going on for her to get this new Olympics off to a good start. Well, it's nice that the Olympics are on right now and that she's there and that we've just had the election and that all the issues are being discussed as regards the Olympics because without the backdrop of Rio and, and right. the good and the bad that's happening there, and mostly it's been good. Mm -hmm. uh, they have an Olympic flame. They, 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 they have everything going. We don't. Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> uh, the issues of is it worth it? Is it worth paying for? How much should it cost, is right out there in the open, but put it there in a positive light. The, the real Olympics are going on. It has cost their country tremendously, that is to say Brazil, uh, but they're putting on a good show. Mm -hmm. And whatever the aftermath is, and, and we know that for most Olympic venues, the aftermath is actually catastrophic uh, in terms of their economic impact, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, the pageantry and coming together of the world in the Olympic Games at least will be given a shot. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing is, it's been a hard slog because Koike Yuriko campaigned on hammering away at the budget, at least the city's budget, of what we're going to pay in terms of this Olympics in 2020. Here's where the rub is, though, and I think people don't quite understand it. They're probably questioning why does it matter for the governor of Tokyo to be talking about this. And the fact of the matter is, is that the budget for running the, the Olympics comes from Tokyo and from the national government. There's supposed to be a sharing. And when there's a sharing, that means people have their fingers out. Yes. And in this case, the national government thinking that Tokyo, okay, 
you are the wealthiest prefecture, you are the one that has the most people, you are actually generating taxes, not consuming taxes, mm -hmm. you can afford it, right? right? And we're contributing part of the land that's along the seafair. Yeah, and, and you can afford it. And Koike Sun's coming in and saying, yeah, but we don't want to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And this was not done on my watch. Right. I'm inheriting it from someone else. You guys have to pay for it. And so she's had meetings. She had a very fast meeting with the prime minister. That shows how important this issue is. And then she's met now with Mori, the head of the Olympic Activities Group, which, well. This is such, let's talk about this a little bit because uh, Mr. Mori was the leader of the Hosoda faction. Yes, okay. right. It was he his faction. He was the prime minister at one point, And I guess he decided when the Olympics come, if we ever get the Olympics, I want to be there. And so he got that post. So he's been kind of controlling a lot of things that are going on. And he had a partner in the former governor of Tokyo. That's right. And he also had, he had, to, he had a minister of the government eventually for the Olympics who could work with the governor. But that's not the situation we have now. No, they've, uh, um, and not only the situation dynamic is different, but she's also kind of stuck a broomstick into that hornet's nest and said, I'm going to be looking at the finances and the decisions that you guys made before I was governor. Well, yeah, but in this case, we have, the, with the cabinet reshuffle, Abe chose a highly tetogenic uh, person, also coming out of television in the form of Olympics Minister Marukawa. Right who campaigned vigorously and vocally against Koike Yuriko. You're a showboat. You're nothing. You're yes. blah, blah, blah. Has, there, there are a million tweets just waiting right. to happen. A little bit of, of bad blood there. Of, of Marukawa's things that she said about Koike. Uh, and they're supposed to sit in a room and talk about what the national government's going to do, what you guys are going to do, and this is... Uh, building up to be a, a bit of a street brawl. Yeah, and it was really, what was made it all the sweeter was they both came to their first day at the office dressed exactly the same way. I saw the, that white the, and The white and gloves, hey, what's going on there? Um, it was, there is no love lost between these people and they have to work together. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Mr. Abe was thinking. He, Maruka, again, is one of his very close, well, I would say psychophants, but that's not unkind, but at least one of the loyalists mm -hmm. in, in his administration. And well, he, she, got a minister, she got a ministerial portfolio out of it. I mean, she got a ministerial portfolio of it. She's from Tokyo. She represents a Tokyo district. She should be on paper the right person, but she is an avowed enemy mm -hmm. of Koike Yuriko. That doesn't seem to be the way to work, but that's the, what we're stuck with. What will that do to the Olympics? Who, uh, it's hard to say. We're still only in the first few days. When, she, when Koike Yuriko comes back with the Olympic flag and we're on our way fully into the Olympic mode, maybe the, everyone will bury all of the bad blood and say, Paul, you know, that was all politics. Right. Now we're going to get down to work. Let's put on our hard hats and start right. digging. The money that was spent, the contracts that were let, let's just let those go. And let's just not start with a clean slate, which is what they did with the stadium. Let's just continue on with this. Let's not ruffle the waters anymore. That's, that's the ideal. Mm -hmm. Whether that's possible or not is another issue. That's going to be, have to be for another broadcast. We're going to continue to watch this. This is potentially a real fireworks for us. Please stay tuned.